you'll open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8. After hearing the sermon last week, I was going to preach from Hebrews 10, but after the sermon last week, I was like, what comes next? We have this no condemnation that we heard about last week, we're encouraged by, and then, I don't know about you, but I like to know what then, what, what's coming next, what happens for me? Um, I watch, I don't know if you like uh, uh, this show on Disney+, Plus. not a sponsor, um, it's called What If, and Titus and I have been watching through this, it's with the Marvel Avengers, and I realize I might lose half of you just by saying that superhero stuff, but I'm okay with it, I'm okay if you don't listen to the rest of this illustration, but in this show, it has these, all these different episodes, every episode is unique and different, and they don't follow just one storyline. There's all these different ones, and it seems like at the end of almost every episode, it brings up something and then never answers the question. Now, I don't like spoilers, so I'll just say this. In the last episode, it brought in, like, everything was nice and coming to a close in this episode, like, okay, everything is happy. And then the last five seconds, they bring in this ultimate bad guy who emerges from the darkness, and then it fades to black. And you're like, what? You you can't do that to me. You can't just bring in this bad guy into this superhero movie, a TV show, and then just leave it there. Because we know the next episode is going to have nothing to do with what just happened. What happens next? I don't know if you have that question about your life. What is going on next? If you have kids that are young in the home, you probably hear this a lot. What are we doing today? What's happening after that? What's going to happen the next day? What's going to happen the day after that? And you're like, you go down this road for a little while of explaining what's going to happen in these next moments and these next days. But eventually, as the parent, you're like, you're not going to remember any of this in the next five minutes. So why am I telling you what's going to happen a week from now? So I'm just going to, we're going to end this right here. Because it's a never-ending cycle of what happens next. So in Romans chapter 8, last week we said, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is a wonderful and glorious and beautiful truth. And then we have to ask ourselves, okay, then, then what's next? Now what do we do? We know our standing before God has changed through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, now what? Well, you don't have to turn there, but in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we have to be reminded first about where we were. It explains in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were once dead in our sins. It says that we were following the culture, we were following the course of the world, We were then also following our own passions of the flesh, our own sinful nature. And we were following, ultimately, we were following Satan. That's what condemned us. That's why we stood condemned before God, because of our own choices to follow our flesh, follow the world. We started out dead in our sins and our desire to even follow Satan. It condemned us. Is something that we deserve to be in eternity in hell. That's where we were headed. Were it not for Christ, in whom there is now no condemnation. As he took our penalty, 
He took our condemnation on the cross, putting it to death, and then having victory over that death. And so if you have been truly taken by that glorious truth that Jesus has taken your condemnation on the cross, then you will live like it. But if Jesus is just an add-on to you, if he's just, uh, I'm going to live how I want to live, I'm going to do my own thing, uh, and I'll, I'll do the church thing, you know, when it's, when it's convenient, when it works out in my schedule, or I'll speak in the Christian lingo so I don't look too awful in front of other people, or I'll, you know, pick up my Bible, maybe just in the times when I feel like I really need it. If we just treat Jesus and Christianity as just kind of an add-on, just to kind of make us feel a little bit better about ourselves, then maybe, just maybe, we have not truly been set free from that condemnation. So I pray that as we go through the passage in verses 12 through 17, that we might see this standing, understand our standing before God, where it's at, but also understand what comes next for us. How might we need to live? What might need to be true about us, about what we are thinking and believing? In verses 5 through 11 leading up to this, Paul just spent those verses talking about what happens when you live according to your flesh, as if you are still condemned before God. It says the flesh that he's speaking of here and is going to be talking about in verses 12 and 13 is referring to our sinful nature. It's referring to uh, the desires and passions of the flesh that condemned us before. As he mentions in Romans chapter 7 verse 8, he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is my, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to, to carry it out. That's what he's talking about when he's mentioning living according to the flesh. It's this nothing good about it type of flesh. Then he addresses the believers in verse 9. We see that he says, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. If this is true of you, verse 10, he says, but if Christ is in you, and verse 11, if the spirit of God, of Christ Jesus dwells in you, he's reaffirming this to them. He's like, okay, you were once in your sins, in your flesh, condemned by God, but now through Christ, you are no longer condemned. If this is true of you, if this is true of you, so then. And then we see verse 12. Let's pick it up there in verse 12. So then, brothers, if you're no longer condemned, so then, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. Lord, help us, help us this morning to be able to look at our hearts, to see truly if we are standing condemned before you right now. And if we are not, may our hearts be softened to this truth and rejoice 
in what comes next after we are declared to be not condemned, that what happens with next might encourage us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we are not standing condemned, what comes next? Well, first we see that we are indebted to Christ. In verse 12, it says that we are debtors. Now, we know a thing or two about being in debt, right? I mean, this is what we're all about here in America. You can do payment plans for just about anything you want, right? There's all sorts of wonderful debt out there, right? Credit card debt, housing debt, car debt, student tuition. You can even get in debt on a printer or even a parking ticket. I mean, there's all sorts of things. I mean, the choice is yours. Isn't that great? There's so many websites that are dedicated to helping you get into more and more debt, too. They said, hey, you buy whatever you want. It doesn't matter if you have the money or not. Just buy it. We'll figure out a payment plan for you. You can buy all the clothes you want, all the stuff you want. It's great. You guys aren't saying amen to that. I'm I'm shocked. Yeah, we we don't say amen to that because we don't want to be in debt, right? Being in debt is not fun. It's not an enjoyable thing for us. Proverbs 22 warns about being in debt. It says, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave of the lender. We don't want to be a slave to anyone, right, or anything. And who in their right mind would ever have said, you know what, I know, I wish, I don't really want to pay all cash for that. I wish I could pay that in monthly payments the rest of my life. Does anybody want to say that? No. We all want to be able to pay, have the money to be able to pay all cash up front and just be done with it, right? We don't want to have payments hanging over our head, maybe not being able to do something we want to do because we are indebted to something else and our money is to go somewhere else. It's just not a fun thing to be in debt. But here, Paul is actually encouraging the believers that they are in debt. He said, you are debtors. This is a good thing. It's a good thing for them. Why? Because of who they are indebted to. And he doesn't really say who they're indebted to. He just says who they're no longer indebted to. They're no longer indebted to their flesh. This indebtedness speaks of an obligation that one has. And I want us to be thinking about this indebtedness much as like a parent and child relationship where at the end of, you know, the child being at home, they're ready to graduate, that child has a, a degree of indebtedness to their parents, A, for keeping them alive, uh, but also so many other things that they have done for them and teach, taught them over the years. And I know many parents are tempted to do this, but no one really does. At the time of graduation, the parents total up all the money that they've spent on their child from age zero and t- total up and said, okay, here's what you owe me. We're tempted to do that as parents, right? Like, well, that'd be kind of nice to get some of that money back. But we don't because we know that it's not the amount of money that they could pay off. Not that they could give us a certain amount of money to, to make everything right again and square us all out and it's even now. They don't owe us. Not at all. Because it's the things that we've taught them and trained them in and it's the love that we've shown them and cared for them. So I want you to be thinking about that, the the care that you might have for maybe your parents or grandparents, maybe a boss that's given you a job and given you an opportunity and promoted you and believed in you and gave you chances to succeed. You feel like you owe them that indebtedness, maybe a mentor or a counselor. You're like, man, I owe them. 
It's a loving relationship when we realize that we are indebted to Christ and we are no longer indebted to our flesh. Before Christ declared to them that they have no condemnation, they were slaves of and indebted to their flesh, just as we are. Every motive and action that we had took put us deeper and deeper into condemnation. Deeper and deeper indebted to our own flesh. And one of the most glorious truths that uh, have encouraged me over the years is that in Christ, I now have the ability to say no to sin. I can. (laughs) The power is there now, not because of anything good that I've done, but because of the Spirit's work in me. He says in verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. By the Spirit, we have this ability to say no to sin, to no longer be indebted to our flesh. Because that's the thing, our flesh, that really brought us into condemnation in the first place. We see a remarkable contrast here, as if to say, what did our flesh ever do to us and do for us that we would want to owe ourselves? In this same section, if you kind of just look back with me in verse 3, It was our flesh that made us not able to fulfill the law to be able to access God. That's what our flesh did for us. It prevented us from fulfilling the law to access and be with God. It was our flesh, also verse 3, that was the reason that God had to send Jesus to pay for our sins because of what our flesh was doing for us. It was our flesh, verse 4, that Jesus came to set us free from. To think and to live totally opposite of that flesh. Verse 6, it was our flesh that brought us death. Verse 7, it was our flesh that was hostile to God. And then probably the worst of it being verse 8. Where it says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Our very purpose for why we exist is to glorify God, is to please God. And it was our flesh That was keeping us from that. It was our sinful nature. It was our sinful, selfish desires that was keeping us from fulfilling why we exist. So if we are no longer indebted to our flesh, guess who we must be indebted to? The one who declared to us that there is no condemnation. The one who provided that salvation to free us from our flesh is in Christ He's the one who gave us that victory over the flesh that we are no longer bound to it. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, most sermons end there, right? You have victory, let's go. And excited, yes. But this one, we're just starting there with the victory we have in Christ. So we're no longer indebted to our flesh. Let's look at verses 13 and 14. Because we are declared to have no condemnation, because we are now indebted to Christ, living in allegiance to Christ, we are now led by the Spirit. Here he's speaking again to brothers, to believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. He's also bringing up how our actions and motives are really revealing 
what we are truly living for. He made that argument in verses 5 through 11. He shares with us here that if you are choosing to live according to the flesh, he says, you will die. Here's what he's saying here. If you're living according to the flesh, then it means that you truly don't know God. And your sins are truly not paid for. He's not saying that you can lose your salvation. He's not saying that in one moment you can be saved and be not condemned any longer. And then in the next moment when you sin, sorry, that's all gone away. He's not saying that at all. Because if you look down at the end of the chapter in verse 39, he says, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate you from the love of Christ. I am one who is in all creation. So that means there's nothing that I can do to separate me from the love of Christ after I have been declared righteous before God through Jesus Christ. After Jesus says there's no condemnation in you, there is nothing that I can do to get rid of that. I am not that good of a sinner. I'm a good sinner, but I'm not that good to be able to overcome what Jesus Christ has done. And I praise the Lord for that. So he is saying here, if you are living according to the flesh, if your life is showing that you are living for you, your life is showing that you are going to die. That there is eternal death awaited for you. 1 John 3, 6 says this, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. This keeps on sinning is not a reference to if you sin tomorrow, sorry, that means you're not truly saved. This keeps on sinning is a makes a practice of. It's saying, you know what, sin isn't a big deal. I'm going to live for myself. I'm going to live for the flesh. I'm going to do what I want to do, and it's not a big deal. And this is where Matthew 18 comes into play, uh, talking about church discipline. If a brother or sister is caught in sin, you go to them and say, you're living in sin. This is wrong. This is going against God. And the person living in the flesh, who is the keeps on sinning types of person, will say, ah, it's not a big deal. No, no, forget it. It's not what you're making it out to be. I know it's wrong, but really, does it really matter? I'm going to just keep on doing it. That's why you keep going into them saying, no, you're living in sin. Please repent, turn to Christ, seek forgiveness. And they just keep at it. Then you bring more people with you, say, we are all, it's not just me, we're all seeing that you're living according to the flesh. They say, ah, not a big deal. No, no, not it. I don't want you to talk to me about this anymore. And that's why it goes to the extent of tell it to the church. And if they keep on living a life of sin, Jesus says, treat them as if they don't know Christ. Treat them as if they are not saved. Treat them as a Gentile. Because they're living like it. Because they're living according to the flesh, they need to know the way that they're living is showing that they might not truly know Christ. So if you're living and being led by the Spirit, it's a constant battle. It says, put to death. You're putting the deeds of the body to death. Colossians 3.5 uses this term as well, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. But again, it's not that you're perfect. It's not that as Christians, we're no longer condemned and now we're living a perfect life. No, it's the, when the brother comes up to you and says, what you're doing is sinful, you're, you're acting in a way that's not glorifying to God, the person who is putting that sin to death is going to say, 
thank you for telling me that. I pre- Will you forgive me? And then you ask God for forgiveness as well. It might take a conversation or two, but it's that process. It's not that we're going to be perfect, but it's that we're going to be in that process of being led by the Spirit as the Spirit convicts us of our sin, as people might bring that to our attention, as the Word of God brings that to our attention. We're going to be battling. And it's going to be a constant battle. But it says there in verse 13, by the Spirit you do that. Led by the Spirit. He's the one who gives that abil- us that ability to say no to sin. To keep putting it to death. To keep that struggle going. There's nothing in our own strength that can accomplish the death of our sin. It is only the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we need to allow him to lead. All who are led by the Spirit of God, verse 14, are sons of God. Being led by the Spirit of God as he does that through the Word of God, as he leads us and teaches us and convicts us of a sin, the Spirit leads us. Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. I watched a number of um, Bob Toomer's round pens. And you guys watched that years ago out at Old Thresher's where he'd come and work a horse that's never been touched before and they'd just be running around, kind of useless, kicking around. And then he gets in there and he works some type of horse whispering magic or something where he starts to train this horse to then be able to follow a lead rope. And it's amazing to see the progression. I watched it a number of times because I uh, did the sound system for him. And so clearly I could have gone in there by the end and done it myself because I've seen it so many times. No, not at all. But it's a beautiful picture of how this horse is useless just running around, (laughs) kind of like living according to the flesh. We are not fulfilling our purpose that God had for us, just running around. But it takes being led, Bob leading that horse and guiding and teaching and convicting it very often and bringing it along to where it is finally able to be led and sat on and ridden and being useful to the owners of that horse. The Holy Spirit leads us and guides us and teaches us in the truth of the word of God and convicts our hearts so that we can be useful for the glory of God, so that we can learn and grow and constantly be putting to death the deeds of the body. If you were to look at this last week of yours, give a percentage of how much you were led by the flesh versus led by the spirit. What percentage would that look like? 80-20? Well, I was led by the Spirit sometimes, but most of my week is really all for me. I want you to think and really truly ask your own heart why you did the things that you did last week. Was it for the glory of God or was, or was it for your own glory? And again, I don't say it to condemn because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I don't say to defeat you because we have victory in Jesus, but I do say it to maybe open your eyes to see what areas of your life you might need to be putting to death. What areas were you living for you just because it was all about you that you need to say, Lord, forgive me. Be led by the Spirit. Allow his word to do a work in your heart that you might turn to Christ in forgiveness. And his standard is not between the person down the pew of looking better than them. 
Or the person at work who might, you just don't want to be as bad as them. (laughs) But it's between you and God, and his standard is put it to death. What is that area of the flesh in your life? Put it to death by the Spirit of God. And as you do that, a glorious truth we're going to look at, as you do that, you will be, it'll be confirmed in your own heart that you are a son or a daughter of God. And with being a son or daughter of God, you are an heir of God. When we became indebted to Christ and are led by the Spirit, when we do these things, it confirms our adoption into the family of God. It confirms it to us. Being in this family, we see that it is a family that is not a part of fear. It does, we don't have a spirit of fear. We do receive a spirit of slavery, but not one to ourselves. Romans 6, 8, it says, having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. So there is a slavery aspect of who we are slaves to, who we are indebted to, but it's not a fear. This slavery does not involve fear at all. We have, instead of, he classifies it as an adoption of, as sons. I want you to think about living in the flesh and how much fear is involved in that. There's fear that you're not going to be able to be good enough to get to God. Your good deeds are not going to outweigh your bad deeds. You are living in fear constantly, trying to do all the right things in your flesh to try to get to God, and you just know that it's not going to work. There's a fear that, again, you have to earn your way to God, that I have to do these things in order for God to be happy with me. There's a fear that maybe this life is all there is, so you're living for you. You're trying to get everything you can get out of this life. Again, you're trying to live your best life now to do everything for you because this is all that there is. It's a life of fear. Life of fear of, is there anything after this? That's why I'm living for myself. And anyone without Jesus has this fear, no matter how they might try to mask it. It might look like they have freedom because they're spending and they're doing everything for themselves. So it looks like freedom. It looks like they're having a great time. But underneath it all, they truly are having fear that this is all it is. So I better do everything for me. Look out for number one. Not so the child of God. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't submit again to that yoke of fear. Don't submit again to that life just lived for you, for your own flesh. God has adopted you if you are in Christ by his grace. And do you realize he didn't have to do that? You realize that God could have said, I am going to save you to a spirit of subjugation. I'm going to save you to a spirit where you are living and you're wondering all the time whether you are going to make it to heaven or not. Like I paid for your sins and it's just going to be miserable for you and you are not going to know what's coming next. It's just going to be rough for you. No, he doesn't. It's this loving relationship where he says, I am adopting you as sons. He says, by whom you can cry, Abba, Father. 
Do you see the difference? We all know that the rights and privileges that a child has in our life, they can interrupt our meetings. They can barge in unannounced because they're our child. When Jesus taught the disciples how to pray, he says, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. In Hebrews 4, 16, he says, that's why, because he is our Father, that we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We sang about that a little earlier. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can do that because he is our father. Because he has adopted us as his child. We can barge in to the throne room and we can find help. We can find mercy. We can find a loving father who cares for us. Who desires to help us. We can go to him as a small child goes to their parents saying, Daddy. And that's how we go to God, isn't it? As one who is helpless, as one who is in need, who has one who cannot survive on our own without God. Much like children cannot survive on their own. They need help. They need healing. When they're hurt, they go to their parents and they say, help me. They're comforted by their parents. And we can come to him too. You can cry out to God as your father, not because you earned it. Not because you were some miraculous person that God wanted on his team. But because he adopted you. It not that a beautiful picture of two parents adopting a child into their home? Someone who had no rights and privileges to come into their house and take their food or care, anybody responsible for them at all. A child who is in desperate need, a child who might not survive without the caring of a loving parent. And for that parent to then say to that maybe random child and say, you are ours now. You will take our last name. You will have all the rights and privileges as if you were born of our flesh. Isn't that a wonderful and beautiful love story (laughs) for parents to adopt kids into their home? And now Jesus, God, he he says, you know what? I'm going to take you who were once my enemy and I'm going to adopt you. You were against me. You stood condemned, you were dead in your sins, you were following Satan, but I am going to adopt you into my family. What compassion, what mercy, what love, what an amazing God we have. And not only that, but he also confirms it with us. We're not left wondering, are we truly saved or not? Verse 16, it says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. As you are being led by the Spirit of God through the Word of God, that will confirm to you that you are a child of God. As I do with anyone who asks me and they they question, I've had many conversations where people say, am I truly saved? I I don't know. I'm struggling right now. Am I going to go to heaven when I die? I'm not sure about that. I always take them back to the Word of God and I say, how does anyone become saved? Let's go back to the truth. Let's go to the the facts of Jesus Christ dying on the cross, rising from the dead, that through confession, 
seeking forgiveness of her sins, trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, you can be saved. That's for anyone. I say, have you done that? Oftentimes they say, yeah, I've done that, but I'm just really struggling. I, in my sin, I have this sin I keep going back to, and that's usually what it comes down to. Usually somebody who looks like they're living according to the flesh. That's why it comes up like 2 Peter 1.9. It says, whoever lacks these godly qualities, whoever's living in that flesh, it says that they are so nearsighted, they're blind, having forgotten that they were cleansed from their former sins. So living in sin, it does make us kind of forget and not think, am I truly saved? Will I truly go to heaven? I got this sin in my life. And I believe that it is a wonderful, good gift from God if you ever question and wonder, are you saved? It is a good gift from God because what does that do for you? It draws you back to the gospel. It draws you back to God as your question saying, am I saved? You're asking this question and where are you going to go to find the answer? You're going to go to the word of God. What does the Bible say about how to be saved? And then it's going to reveal that you have sin in your life. That's why you're questioning whether you're saved or not, whether you're a child of God or not, because you have this sin that's going on. And then you're just like, I need to repent of this. And isn't that a good gift? Anytime we repent of our sin, anytime we get the opportunity to turn our hearts back to the gospel, back to the glorious truth of how we came to know Christ, With being this child of God and being led by the Spirit, it confirms, the Spirit will confirm that you are a child of God. That's why we can have confidence before him. And isn't this just God heaping blessing upon blessing? Verse 17, we are heirs. Heirs of God with Jesus Christ. So so first, let's get this right. Jesus is going to declare, declare to us that we have no more condemnation. We know how much we've sinned. Wow, that's amazing. No condemnation. Then he gives us his spirit that we are then able to say no to sin and no to the flesh. What a wonderful gift that is. And then he desires for us to cry out to him, Abba, Father, that we can go to his throne and pray anytime. What a wonderful gift. And now we receive all these rights and privileges that God's own son, Jesus, receives? Blessing upon blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I don't know what kind of news you had last week. What happened last week for you? Maybe you got bad news from a doctor. Maybe you had a relationship issue that was a struggle. I know we all got the news of our dear sisters in Christ passing away this last week. It's hard. With all these hard things that come into this life, isn't it good to know that one thing is secure, that you are a child of God? And even with our sisters in Christ passing away, guess what? We can have confidence knowing where they are because of their testimony of faith in Jesus Christ. They had confidence knowing where they were going to be when they died. That's something that we can rest in. That's something we can rejoice in, knowing that God has not withheld any good that he desires from us. 
being an heir of Christ, heir with Christ, is just a wonderful blessing that we, again, do not deserve. But he tags on this, provided we suffer. Now, I don't know about you, but again, my fleshliness kind of comes out with that, right? Provided we suffer, wait a minute, you mean my life isn't going to be perfect and wonderful? I'm not going to be healthy and wealthy and have everything going for my life if I trust in Jesus, provided we suffer? Now, this suffering is not talking about just living in a sin-cursed world type of suffering. This suffering is speaking of the suffering we endure for Jesus, living for Christ, being led by the Spirit. And so when faced with a little adversity, how quickly can our flesh go back to, I don't want that. I don't want that suffering. I don't want the adversity. I don't want that trials or anything. I just want the, God give me all the good stuff. That's what I want. I don't want any hardship or trials in my life. I don't want that part. Can I leave that out? Well, I'm sorry to say you can't. But really, why do we go back to that? Why do we kind of shun at this idea of suffering for Jesus? Because we're willing to suffer and, and endure pain for a lot of reasons, aren't we? Right? If you're in sports teens, right? You're willing to endure the pain and agony of running and training and all of that. You're willing to endure suffering. Mothers, you're willing to endure the suffering of bearing children. We're willing to endure suffering, really, when we think it's worth it, aren't we? The trials, the soreness, or whatever it is, we're, we're, we're willing to endure that if we think it's worth it. So if we look at this and says, provided we suffer with him, and we we're like, nah, I don't want that. Could it be that we might not think Jesus is worth it? That we might not think that the outcome of being an heir with God is really worth it? Because I have to live differently now? Do you think Christ is worth it? Worth suffering for? And why must we suffer? Because it's something that's naturally going to happen. We have to think of all these things that Christ has already done for us as he has suffered for us. So if you realize what Christ has already done, the work of the Holy Spirit to understand all of that, you're going to be led by the Spirit. If you no longer stand condemned, you will be led by the Spirit. And if you're going to be led by the Spirit, you're going to be living a different type of life than everyone else. You now have an eternal purpose as an opposed to an earthly one. You will stand out and be different. A sold-out life for Christ will bring a type of suffering in your life. And it's going to look different for everyone. It looks different over in Afghanistan and China living for Christ than the suffering we might endure here. Or in Peru or anywhere across the globe. It's going to look different. It's going to look different where you live, whether in the inner city here in America or in the country. Us here in small-town Iowa. It's going to look different where you work for each and every one of us. It's going to look different with the relationships and the families that you have of what suffering might be. But I want to encourage you that to know and share in the sufferings of Christ, you will see that this resurrection from the dead, being an heir of, of God with Christ, is so worth it. Read through the book of Acts, I encourage you. See the suffering that many, many believers endured, and yet they counted it as a joy and a privilege to suffer 
for Christ, as Christ has suffered so much for us in his sacrifice on the cross. It says, in order that we may be glorified with him. In verse 18, that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed. It's like taking a grain of sand, holding it up to a mountain and trying to compare the difference. It's pointless. Why even compare? Why even make that effort? The sufferings that you will endure as being led by the Spirit of God, it's not even compared to the glory that is to come. So we can't hold back living for Christ. If you, have, if you are no longer condemned, what comes next for you? If you know what's good for you, have you guys ever heard your parents say that? If you know what's good for you? Usually it comes as a threat. Here it comes as a promise for you. If you know what's good for you, believer, you're going to live your life indebted to Christ, no longer to your flesh. You will be led by the Spirit if you know what's good for you. If you know what's coming for you, the glory that is to be revealed, being an heir of God Almighty, if you know what's good for you, you're going to live for Christ and you're not going to hold back. Suffering will come, but the glory that will be revealed is so much greater. Let's pray. Lord, we cannot thank you enough. Not just for our new standing that we have in Christ with no condemnation, but for how you have given us the Spirit to lead us and give us new life and new hope. To be able to live in such a way that it confirms in our hearts that we are your children. And with that we can see the wonderful blessing of being an heir. Father, Daddy, we are so thankful for you. Something we could not earn. We are helpless without you. We rejoice that we can come to you now. And we are looking forward to that day when all that glory is going to be revealed and we get to be with you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.